Yama, and welcome to the National Library of Australia. In doing so, I acknowledge Australia's First Nations people as the traditional owners and custodians of this land and give respect to the elders past and present and through them to all Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. In January 2020, Australia went from battling one of its worst ever bushfire seasons to preparing for COVID-19 to hit its shores. What ensued was a crisis, a pandemic, political upheaval, an international human rights movement, global recession and localised emergencies dwarfed by a world spinning on an axis of turmoil. Joining us today to discuss the year that changes is Michelle Grattan, Chief Political Correspondent at The Conversation and Professorial Fellow at the University of Canberra, and Dr Caroline Fisher, Associate Professor of Journalism from the University of Canberra. Hi there, and thanks Marcus very much for the introduction. And thank you all for joining us via Facebook Live. Thank you also for your patience. We did have some technical difficulties uh, launching this today, so um, thank you for hanging in there. And uh, we look forward to your questions uh, later in the event. So we are today discussing the year that changed us. And one of the questions that Michelle and I will be exploring is, but did it really? How much of that change will remain? Hi, Michelle. Hi, Caroline. So look, let's get started uh, with Scott Morrison. Um, mm -hmm. He's had an unprecedented year. Um, how did he travel in that year? And have these events, events changed him as a leader? Well, of course, he started this year really, really badly. There was that uh, holiday in Hawaii oh, that, that ended up the holiday from hell <coughs> in December uh, because uh, it was during the bushfires and he misjudged, uh, thought he could he take the family did. away for a secret holiday, it started out. <laughs> and anyway, it became uh, a very uh, bad look. So in January, he tried to retrieve this somewhat by touring around bushfire areas and didn't receive a very good uh, reception. No, and had but some bad optics in some of the communities he went to, didn't they, when he went to shake their hands? Absolutely. But then behind the scenes, of course, COVID was coming and the government faced uh, a mounting crisis. At the beginning, it didn't seem as though it was going to be absolutely huge. Probably the health experts thought it would be, but mostly it was thought, well, we'd have a few cases. This was a, 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 a virus that was spreading elsewhere mm. rather than uh, going to hit us too much. But that quickly changed and the government had to find a response, had to deal with the health situation and had to prepare itself for what was going to be a massive economic hit, which of course turned into uh, the biggest recession we've had uh, really since the, the Depression uh, and, and the first recession since the early 90s. I think the government has handled it, uh, the crisis well. Scott Morrison realised during the bushfires that he didn't have a lot of federal power, that power to deal with the bushfires resided basically with the states. And that's the same with COVID. Power is with the states. And we've seen during this crisis just how powerful the states are with the whole border issue, of course, uh, which the borders have gone up and, and 
partially down and now up again uh, this week. Mm. So what Scott Morrison did was create the National Cabinet, which brought together all the state and territory leaders as well as the federal government, and that did help getting a common response or a coordinated response to the crisis. Now, it didn't mean all these governments were on the same page. No. <laughs> There's been differences over the borders, but also at the beginning, there was a difference about how hard to go in terms of shutting things down. Scott Morrison was not keen on shutting too much down, but the New South Wales and Victorian premiers, right at the start, said, we've got to hit this hard. So uh, that national cabinet muted differences to an extent, although they have broken out at times, but then it comes together again, but also coordinated responses. And in the pushing and shoving, in fact, I think came through with basically quite good policies. Now, you can always point to the differences, the arguments, the sniping, but overall, that structure worked during the crisis. Okay, so do you think that's one of the changes that will endure post-COVID? I think that it will endure in the sense that this has replaced COAG, the Council of Australian mm -hmm. Governments, which had got a bit uh, bureaucratic and didn't seem to be achieving as much as it should. But my feeling is that in a federation, you, you will get fights over issues and they will emerge quite strongly as time goes on. Some of the states, uh, particularly some of the Labor states, um, were, I guess, um, highlighted for, for not uh, towing the line in the way that the federal government would have liked. Um, do you think that there'd be pushback from some of those state governments for this national cabinet situation to carry on? Uh, I think that it wasn't only the Labor states that pushed back. I mean, South Australia and Tasmania, Liberal governments, were tough on borders, but the uh, Federal government targeted Queensland because the Queensland state election was coming up. That targeting, in fact, backfired on the feds and uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk uh, came out, of course, triumphant in, in that particular contest. Uh, but I think that uh, what you'll see with the National Cabinet in the longer term on non-COVID issues is that the normal differences in the Federation will will arise on specifics. Okay, can we just go back to one of the things you were mentioning before when we were talking about the bushfires and how Scott Morrison got off to a pretty bad start uh, in relation to that. And so he, he, he kind of started off the year as being not very responsive and certainly slow mm. to respond. Mm. And of course, there are some bushfire victims who are still yet to receive assistance, um, but then seemed to develop into a more responsive Prime Minister. <laughs> Do you think that he's learned something along the way? Do you think he'll continue to be a more responsive Prime Minister? I think he's a very pragmatic Prime Minister and he's a Prime Minister who does what it takes. Now, when you think of what he has done in terms of economic stimulus, he's taken Treasury advice, he's got a huge deficit, he's got run up huge debt, he has accepted that in these extraordinary circumstances, you've got to stimulate the economy. He's become and, a very good Labor Prime Minister. Well, <laughs> this, is, this is really a mile 
a million miles from what the Liberal Party was saying a few years ago and, and what its, its general political stance is. Mm. But he, he's really, except on, on a few social things, he's, he's not particularly ideological. He therefore can move according to need. And of course, he just won that uh, unwinnable election, right? Yes. So he had a lot of authority to deploy, and that was that was quite important. There was he didn't have to look over his shoulder at anyone. There was no one standing behind, sort of thinking, "I want his job." Mm. So he had strong authority. He had a desperation to somehow get through this crisis successfully. And he was willing to listen to the advice, the health experts, the economic experts. Uh, although it's interesting, I think, that throughout the crisis, his emphasis has somewhat skewed to the economic. Mm -hmm. He's understood and accepted that the health crisis has to be dealt with and, and that that is quite primary. But his philosophy has been you suppress the virus or his policy, you don't try to go for elimination. Yep. But of course, in some states, the result has been elimination, mm. except when you think you've eliminated, like South Australia, so, up, up it pops. pops. Indeed, up it pops indeed. Um, so one of those changes and changes in relationship and an economic relationship has been uh, with the unions and they were very uh, um, uh, cooperative, you know, during COVID mm. and the economic response and making, uh, you know, embracing flexibility mm. for the workforce, mm. etc. Now, do you think that's going to endure? Do you think that's sort of reform by stealth that won't return to former standards? Do you think that that relationship will endure and that co cooperation will endure? I think that we haven't actually seen the outcome of this because uh, the government hasn't produced its industrial relations changes and clearly uh, Sally McManus, the um, ACTU secretary, uh, said this far no further. So I think that um, the cooperation of the union movement is a situation of up to, the, up to a point. Yeah, okay. and and that uh, there will be fights on those industrial issues. Mm. So one of the things that we've seen is that political trust has risen during mm. COVID, not just here, uh, in other countries as well. Um, and Where there've been successful responses, exactly, indeed. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we've seen then this successful uh, re-election of Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland. Do you expect this to flow on to Morrison uh, come the next federal election? Well, I think that uh, there are a couple of separate points here. On political trust, yep. I think what we see is uh, following a decline over decades yes. in trust. I think people in a crisis look to authority, look to established institutions, remember that the hyperpartisanship was dialed down and that helps trust go up, I think. And uh, therefore, uh, it was a good time for trust because people think, well, these, these institutions are the, the tried and tested ones and we've got to rely on them. And as it turned out, you could rely on them. Mm. Mm. Now, whether that continues in the future, I would think that 
when this crisis passes, and it might take a while, mm. obviously, uh, even though we have low cases, the, the whole world's in turmoil, but I would think that we still will probably be left with a problem of, of distrust arising again because distrust comes partly from very fractious politics, from divided communities, from discontent, inequalities, all those things. Okay, which brings me to, to Labor, um, and there has been quite a degree of bipartisanship, which you know arguably has has reduced Labor's ability to kind of cut through. Mm. So Labor started off with quite strongly uh, with the Eden Monero by-election win under their mm. belt, um, mm. a boost to Anthony Albanese. Um, he gave a couple of vision statements this year as well with policy about jobs, quite future a few, of actually. work. Yeah, well, <laughs> There's indeed. a lot of vision. There's <laughs> a lot of vision, that's right. The economy, renewables, etc. focus on childcare and the mm. budget reply. But has he been able to cut through despite that? No, I don't think he has been able to cut through. And I think that Labor, any opposition in this situation would be in a very difficult position. On the one hand, people do not want a lot of scrapping around uh, small issues or the big COVID issues. They want to see parties working together. Now, for an opposition, that's a very difficult situation. Mm. And Labor did recognise that. And basically, it, it uh, supported the the big moves of the government, uh, then it started chipping away at the detail of some of those moves. But even then, I think the public was just looking at the big picture. It didn't want to be delving down into the weeds particularly. And I think Labor has become increasingly frustrated that it can't, it, it can't get a grip on things. It's as mm. though it's trying to go up a very slippery hill and just finds itself always, you know, sliding or pushed to the side or whatever. And there's no strategy really here, which is the right strategy. If it just goes along with the government, then no one's listening to it. If it's really fractious and takes up every issue, then people say, well, well they're just being obstructionist and they're marked down. Now, it has tried to take up other issues, um, integrity issues, things of this sort. But again, people think, yes, might agree with the point, but I don't really have the time or energy to focus on those issues mm. when I'm worried about my job or my business or whatever. So I think Labor is really in a difficult position. And then on top of that, it's got this internal argument yes. about where to go on climate policy. Mm. And of course, last week we saw uh, Joel Fitzgibbon, who was going to leave the front bench at, at um, the end of the year under some complicated uh, deal, <laughs> but uh, leave it in rather more dramatic circumstances, just when Labor was thinking it would score points uh, off the back of the Biden win against the government on climate change. And now it's, you know, it's in the middle of this argument and there's no easy way for it to solve its climate policy, which is quite a central policy for it. Indeed. So do you think now that Joel Fitzgibbon has gone uh, to the backbench, will he be quiet? I mean, what's that move going to actually do other than sort of physically move from one space to another? Anyone who's <laughs> known Joel <laughs> would say he will not be quiet. No. Uh, it's not, 
it's really not clear how much he's going to ramp this up because uh, I remember very uh, clearly in 2013 when he thought there should be a leadership change back to Kevin Rudd, he was a big agitator. Now he says that this is just about policy, it's not about leadership. Mm. But nevertheless, there are quite a few frustrated people in Labor who think, well, Anthony Albanese probably isn't going to win the next election. And this inevitably leads to destabilisation. Mm. My feeling is that even if Anthony Albanese is not going to win the next election, is it sensible to burn off another He's leader? Another leader. Mm. Um, and people would, and, and anyway, who who is there? Obviously, Jim Chalmers is <laughs> the a bit, alternative uh, the, mm. or the front runner if there was to be a change. But mm. would he do any better against Scott Morrison in these circumstances? I think probably not. So... Do you think it's possible, though, for um, Albanese to unite the party over climate change? I mean, he did have that reputation, uh, you know, when Julia Gillard mm. um, was the leader of the Labor Party uh, and Prime Minister, and that he did all of that background work, that he was a good negotiator, he could bring different voices mm. together, that he really was a good mediator, really. Um, but we, he doesn't seem to be able to pull that off in this instance within his own party. Look, I think he will be able to stitch something together, but I think that... The trouble is that the, the sort of um, tears in the fabric will still be visible, as it mm. were. And uh, this is an issue where people in the party are, are genuinely divided because mm. there are the pragmatists uh, who say, well, you've got to have a fairly mild policy, a policy that's not too far from the government. This is Joel, of course, uh, because you need to win those regional seats in, in mm. Queensland. There are the others who are sort of borderline green uh, people, although they're in the Labor Party, but they say, well, this is a defining issue, um, great moral challenge, etc. Kevin Rudd yeah, once said, right. and we can't afford not to have a really robust policy. Now, getting getting those two sides together is pretty difficult. And of course, Bill Shorten found this and it was accused mm. of saying one thing in the South, one thing in the North. It, yes. It's a well, real you can't do dilemma. That. It, it yeah. is a serious policy issue and rift. Uh, surely, uh, I mean, would the, if it was a was a, a quality mend or a quality join of these two ideas that, that was seen as a compromise, but a credible, solid compromise, do you think that the electorate would, would buy that? I mean, the electorate is not united on this either. And there's a lot of people in the middle who are undecided. Well, that's right. And I think when you talk about the electorate, you're, you're talking about particular electorates. You're talking yes. about the, the inner city seats or some mm. of the, the suburban seats in the, the main cities. And you're talking about the regions. Mm. And I think that you'll get different sort of responses from, from different areas. Now, one of the other big issues that we've seen, uh, aside from COVID and from the bushfires, has been China. That has been a, a recurring theme mm. this year. And, um, I mean, it seems to me that, it, you know, all the commentary is that China's relationship uh, with Australia has taken a complete nosedive, starting mm. with the call for an investigation into the origins of COVID. Even earlier, I Even think. Even earlier, Ministers yeah. uh, in the Turnbull government weren't able to get there or have calls returned on occasion. So where to now? Can you see things improving? I mean, is this one of these changes that will endure and continue to worsen or do you think this is a change that uh, 
might be corrected? Look, I think it's a very serious situation and obviously how the um, Biden administration handles China will, uh, will play into our situation. But I think that really how it goes is in a sense, more about China than Australia. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the deterioration reflects the tougher and more assertive position taken by the Chinese government in recent years. And although China was was agitated about that call for a COVID inquiry, and, and probably even more agitated actually about the Turnbull government's legislation against foreign interference, yes. Um, I think that it, it is reflecting how China sees the world and China sees Australia as, as sort of lackey to the United States and it, it really wants to um, denigrate Australia, put it on the back foot. It, it is a, a competitor, obviously, um, for influence over Pacific countries. Uh, it is in increasing competition uh, at a, a superpower level with the United States. Its whole um, power is, is growing. And I think that the, what Australia can do is to an extent limited. Sometimes critics say, well, we don't uh, engage properly at a diplomatic level. Yeah, there's but, been that criticism. Mm. But I don't think that this is just about language or diplomacy. Mm -hmm. And I think we do have to take actions. You can argue about the um, call for the inquiry into COVID, mm -hmm. but I don't think you can reasonably argue about the need uh, for protection against foreign interference. And that's going to be a an area of conflict with China. So with the Biden uh, election in the US, um, do you see the shift in their dynamic with China having a positive influence on ours? Do you think there'll be a flow through from that? Look, I think that uh, the um, Biden administration will uh, perhaps tone down and, and shift the relationship somewhat with China, but I don't think there'll be a huge shift. I think that there's a, a general feeling across parties in the United States that uh, China represents a, a challenge mm. and so that the, the shift will be one of degree rather than a qualitative shift. Earlier on, you mentioned integrity and that that's also been a bubbling issue this year. And I guess most recently, it appear uh, in ICAC in, in mm. New South Wales with the uh, relationship between uh, Gladys Berejiklian um, and uh, the former MP and then recently allegations raised on Four Corners about federal ministers and inappropriate relationships uh, with staff. Um, has is this going to change? And have, have standards kind of shifted? I mean, no one's lost their jobs, uh, in, you know, uh, as a result of these uh, allegations mm. or supposed inappropriate relationships. I mean, I just wonder if this toler the tolerance for this type of behaviour has changed. And is that, is that something that's happened over time? Do you think it's because of COVID and we're distract distracted by bigger problems? But, but there hasn't been a real price that anyone's paid for, for uh, behaviour that perhaps once upon a time would have been... Well, punished more severely. Some of this behaviour, of course, wouldn't have 
come out in former times. I think that uh, that's one thing to consider. Mm, right. um, it's right that no one's lost their jobs, uh, either in the, the, the uh, pressure on the New South Wales Premier or the, the two federal ministers, but, you know, it's a continuum. Yeah. I think that Gladys Berejiklian has taken a knock from all that, a political knock, and that, you know, reduces her authority and credibility and flows onto other things and then other actions that she's taken get more scrutiny and so on. Similarly, the ministers, I think, uh, their reputations are dented. If you take um, Christian Porter, for example, he would have been on people's lists yes, as, as a potential, potential future Liberal leader yes. and thus and a potential Bishop Prime Minister. Yeah. But I think uh, that many people would have, many observers would have now struck him off those lists. So it's not necessarily always a question of losing your job. It might be a question of, to some extent, uh, constraining your future when these um, issues arise. I think that we are getting more in, uh, pressure, of course, to get that legislation done and dusted for an integrity commission. Yes. A uh, bit of an irony that uh, just before the Four Corners program, it was Christian Porter outlining that legislation, draft legislation. There's a lot of uh, consultation to go. I think that um, a lot of people think that the part of the legislation which covers politicians and public servants, uh, it should have more provision for openness rather than secret hearings and so on. On the other hand, the experience over some years of New South Wales ICAC has meant that uh, some critics see that as at times being a kangaroo court and therefore don't want that repeated federally. It's quite interesting, by the way, that you've now got support for an integrity commission from both sides federally, Labor enthusiastically, Libs reluctantly, but a decade ago, neither side supported no. such a body. They said, well, it's not much... Well, there's not corruption at federal level and we don't need it. But as, as far as these sort of professional relationships go, I mean, can you ever really legislate against it? Can you really ever, you know, kind of erase that? And, of course, there are clearly some uh, unequal power dynamics in some of those relationships, but also some of these relationships are terribly successful and go on to marriage. Uh, people mm. often meet people in the workplace. Mm. Is it something that you can really get rid of in, in Look, politics? I think it's a very difficult area and it goes to power dynamics, whether, whether people are, you know, under pressure or have um, uh, very unequal power. Uh, but I, I think that it's now a debate, of course, um, uh, that's going politically, but also in the business community. We've just yes. seen the, and also, the head also, of Channel 9 out yes. because of... There was the High a, Court earlier a, as well. Relationships. Yes, I think the High Court case is in a different sort of category. Um, it's about uh, power, relationships uh, and power. I right? think that the, uh, the the political ones we've been talking about mm. and uh, the, um, the the business one are, you know, consensual relationships yep. and it's yes, sure. the, others, the other one involved a whole lot of other more yes. uh, complex issues. Yep. But... I think it's it's sort of a debate of the times. People have become 
quite moralistic about these things as, as well as seeing it in terms of uh, women's position and, and rights and uh, inequalities and, and so on? Have they though? Because we, we have um, a Prime Minister who's very strong with his Christian values mm. um, and espouses family values and um, so where, who's, who's upholding those values? I mean, given that he is so strong with these religious convictions, uh, he, he hasn't come down strongly on his ministers about this. Uh, and then, uh, and well, he probably has privately. <laughs> I think uh, what you see, uh, well, Malcolm Turnbull, of course, uh, put in the, the ban on uh, sexual relationships between yes, ministers the ban. and their staff. You mustn't call it that right, because sorry. Scott Morrison <laughs> gave a, a journalist a very firm lecture about oh, language right. the other day. Um, but I think what you saw with those ministers is what you often see actually in ministerial crises, and that is a prime minister has to decide whether he tosses a, a minister who's uh, in a difficult situation or hurt or whatever, made a huge mistake or something, to the sharks, mm -hmm. um, and whether that'll, the blood and the water will just encourage um, you know, more sharks to look for more victims, or whether they stand by their minister. And usually, not always, but usually the decision is to stand by the minister and hang on mm. to them and try and tough it out. I don't think it necessarily means that Scott Morrison wouldn't be um, pretty unhappy with the behaviour. Yes, I mean, there must be some concern that it might have an impact on the Christian vote because that was important in the last federal election. Mm, I, I doubt that it would have... Okay. Well, it might against those particular ministers. I doubt that that would flow over to the the Prime Minister because I think that, um, again, all these issues are being marginalised. They, they, they flare up for a couple of, a few days in the media and so on. But I think in ordinary people's minds out in the electorate, yes. they are being marginalised. They're aware of them, but they think, well, they're secondary to, to what's happening in my life. On the religious vote, incidentally, it's interesting that I think a, a victim of COVID, if you can call it that, will be the religious freedom legislation, which was supposed to be being brought in and has sort of disappeared. I doubt that that will be revived before the election. I think it's a good right. thing it won't be, but I think that uh, some uh, of the religious constituency might uh, be unhappy that it's disappeared. Okay, look, I've got a mind, uh, an eye on the clock and uh, there seems to be that there are people who would like to ask you some questions as well. So, but just quickly before we do go, um, I mean, do you think 2021 will be a better year than 2020? Well, I think it's got to be a better year, <laughs> but I think it's going to be a tough year. Um, so... Assuming that we keep the virus under control, and of course that's a big assumption because it's raging in the world, uh, I think based on that assumption, we're still going to have a difficult time economically. Obviously, there'll be a bounce back if the health front is okay. But nevertheless, a lot of people will have lost jobs and 
found it hard, find it hard to get back into the labour market. The Reserve Bank is particularly concerned about this. That was reiterated in a, a speech last night by the Reserve Bank governor. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of businesses won't survive. The government's uh, extended a great deal of credit and it's also liberalised conditions around bankruptcy and so on to, to help businesses. But nevertheless, they, they will fall away. And if there's a bit of stop-start activity, like we're seeing in South Australia, you know, close-downs of gyms and other things for a, just a couple of weeks. But, but if you're running a business, that can matter and especially, you know, pre-Christmas. So I think 2021 will be a tough year. Our borders uh, internationally will stay closed for a long time. We're not getting migrants in. Migrants are engines of economic growth. So are students. Uh, so on many fronts, the settings have changed and I think it'll be a long time before things are restored. Okay, so now you've got to grab your crystal ball, Michelle. <laughs> so the first question, do you think Scott Morrison will call an early election with his increased popularity after his handling of COVID-19? Well, a lot of people have thought he would cause a call an election late next year. Mm -hmm. He says pretty firmly he doesn't intend to do that. Now, the cynics will say you never believe politicians, but sometimes it's wise to believe politicians, right? And I think in this case, I do believe him, may be proved wrong, but I think that if his popularity is high, why wouldn't he go through to uh, the due time of early 2022? Firstly, uh, apart from COVID, he, he hasn't done a great deal of other things. And so he might want to take all next year to do some of those things. Yes, it's been a big Se distraction. Secondly, even popular leaders who call early elections can get a knock. Uh, remember right back to Bob Hawke, huge popularity, 1984, opposition leader Andrew Peacock was absolutely on the floor ran a strong campaign, negative campaign, about uh, pensioners and assets tests and didn't win the election, but did, did well, did quite well and, and Hawke uh, had a, a setback. So Morrison knows that and therefore I, I think the, he has no great incentive to go for an early election if he thinks he's well placed for the normal time. Yeah, and the public is probably craving stability. Yeah, the, and the public don't want an election before it has to happen. Mm. This is a personal question for you. Hi, I'm wondering how Michelle has found writing about a seemingly apocalyptic year while maintaining constant even level of perspective. How have you managed even that? Level of... You've, you've, you've maintained your perspective even though it's been an apocalyptic well, year. I think how have it... you managed that? I think it has been a, a quite difficult year journalistically because there has been an intense amount of activity and uh, it's, it's sort of all around the same subject but various aspects of that. Maintaining perspective is, is, is difficult because, as I mentioned at the beginning, thinking back to February, we thought this would not have a great impact 
this illness would not have a great impact on Australia, that we wouldn't have the large number of cases. Now, we've had, uh, compared to other countries, obviously relatively few, but I think it, 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 it hit us harder than uh, we, as a country, than we thought. And of course, there was the second wave in Victoria, which was um, really bad in terms of, of deaths in, in, in aged care and uh, terrible for people who were locked down for months and months and months compared to those of us who were fortunate enough to be living in Canberra who were only, yes. you know... Touch wood. ..affected <laughs> in a minor way and not for very long. There's another question here, actually, about, you know, based on your you know, decades of experience being such a senior political journalist, uh, can you remember a y another year that has been as challenging as this for a government? Um, well, I think in terms of policy and surprise, if you like, no. I think that the global financial crisis was a very challenging time for the Labor government, the Rudd government. Uh, that was particularly difficult, but not as difficult as this, because you had, in this case, the, the health dimension and the economic dimension, and it was so huge. Um, if you look at other levels, though, you could go back to, say, the Whitlam time, yep. and I think that uh, that that was challenging in, in facing, uh, you know, economic, serious economic problems. And then, of course, the whole constitutional crisis and, and so on. So that was, uh, we've just had the anniversary, the 45th anniversary of the dismissal. So um, it, it's in some people's heads. But um, that was challenging in a different sort of way, I think, obviously. Okay. Um, another question. Do you think what is happening in the US is an indicator uh, for the Liberal and the Conservative parties in Australia of what, what, what might happen here? Is there, is there a mood for change? Uh, you mean, or the questioner means uh, a change of government? Yes, I, I, that's uh, what I would take from that. that is there because a... it, you could also look at how society there has unravelled yes. and all the problems and the divisions. Now, I think that we must, in our democracy, be very aware of how a community can polarise, and this is particularly relevant to, to the media, which has become, in certain sections, more shrill in, in recent times here, and uh, that can add to um, the divisions. But in terms of a change of, of um, government, no, I, I think that the circumstances are, are very different. I think that uh, here you've had a, a government that's been basically successful. Obviously, uh, its, its critics will point to areas where it's not successful, but mm. overall in the handling of the crisis, successful. And therefore, there's not the sort of uh, momentum for change. Now, an election's a long time away, and I won't make predictions. I'm just saying what it looks like at this point. Clearly, in the United States, you had uh, a 
hugely divisive and, and controversial president. And the change there was driven as much by just trying to, to get rid of the president as, as by positive factors. Okay, um, another question. Has COVID um, masked some of the um, difficult policy areas for the government, such as sports rorts, um, bushfire response, et cetera? Has it, has it been useful in some ways to the government? Um, I think, it, it, yes, it has um, suppressed issues and made it harder to get traction on some of those issues. On sports rorts, that had almost blown itself out by the early stages of COVID because in that case, uh, I was speaking before about uh, a Prime Minister wanting to hang on to ministers. Mm. In that case, the minister was thrown to the sharks <laughs> um, because the situation sort of became untenable and, and the, the judgment was made by the government, well, there needs to be a sacrifice. Uh, and that was Bridget McKenzie. Um, obviously, uh, there's been a bit of talk later about sports shorts, but as I say, I think the, the big impact of that was, uh, was earlier. Uh, other issues, um, you know, that dodgy land deal yes. near Sydney Airport, uh, various... Um, well, Australia Post, the rather strange yes, issue of the, right, the, the watches when, um, when the CEO was put in an impossible position and, and, and she quit. I think we're still to hear a bit about that because mm. the report of the inquiry into that is still to come back. But again, they don't get the traction that they might get mm. in a non-COVID environment. Also, I was just wondering about aged care. Um, oh, well, that, yes, that, that certainly mm. got a lot of attention, but that will be a huge issue for next year because we'll get the Royal Commission report, final report. We know that will be devastating. This has been an area of uh, bad policy through a number of years and, and, and governments. And of course, most of our COVID deaths have been mm. in aged care. And I note yesterday that Scott Morrison, when he was talking about South Australia, said they'd stood up the aged care response, federal state response already in South Australia. And that's come out of the, the bad uh, experiences before. Mm. And he talked specifically to the Premier about this. So aged care is a, an issue which has been big this year, will be even bigger next year in terms of policy making. Was it a missed opportunity in this year's, in the budget, not to allocate some money, given that they'd had early recommendations from the Royal Commission? Or do you think they're well, saving up for a big splash next year? I think that they did allocate quite a lot of money at various points over the last few months. But I think that they have had to wait sensibly to wait for that report and the whole system needs massive overhaul. Mm. It's not just a question of money, it's a question of organisation, regulation, um, uh, you know, public, private, the, whole, the mm. whole system is flawed. Now here's a gnarly question for you. <laughs> for Michelle, given that uh, so much of the emergency powers actually rest with the states. Should we now be having a conversation about dissolving the states? Well, 
<laughs> to the questioner, good luck with starting that. <laughs> because I don't think, um, uh, you know, the old Irish joke that if you were going somewhere, you wouldn't start from here. Uh, <laughs> but we are here and I think that um, there is uh, no way that the states uh, are going to be dissolved. But, of course, the whole question of federalism has been a recurring one. Tony Abbott set up an inquiry into federalism, which um, uh, Malcolm Turnbull didn't go ahead with. And, you know, there are debates periodically about fiscal imbalance and, and of course, the GST and, and the distribution uh, situation was uh, somewhat uh, altered because Western Australia was kicking up at one point. But I think that what we have learned really, even though Scott Morrison gets very cross about the states and the borders and so on, in general, the states uh, are respected, I think, by their electorates because they're providing the services and they're doing a lot of on the ground stuff. Now, it's interesting that in the Liberal Party, you do find people on the right very annoyed about how the states have performed and especially how they've stood up in some cases to, to Scott Morrison. Mm. But I mean, the Liberal Party is supposed to be the party of federalism, right? Yes. Uh, and I think that you've got to bring perspective here. You can disagree with particular decisions by particular states, but on the whole, like the federal government, I think they've performed well during COVID. Mm. Uh, whatever view you take on, on borders, and, and it's, it's a vexed argument, this border, internal borders argument, but I think that uh, the states have done pretty effective work. And if you look at uh, the ratings. I think there's an essential poll out today and the premiers seem to be well rated. So I think they have support of their people. Okay, so we're, we're running out of time now. We'll have to wrap up fairly shortly. So we've covered a lot of ground about the big issues that have, have shaped politics mm. in Australia this year. Uh, China, COVID, you know, the bushfires, integrity. Uh, there's a range of other issues. So which which parts of this change will endure, do you think, or, or how much of it has just been the pragmatics of the moment? That's a really hard <laughs> issue to end on. But I think if you look at, at, at perhaps what we've found out about ourselves and our politicians, in a sense, it's been all about resilience and the extent to which you have resilience, whether as an individual or uh, a government, and how the question for the future is how you need to strengthen that resilience in what sort of areas, uh, whether, for example, that we need to be more self-sufficient in medical supplies, mm -hmm. something like that, uh, or other areas for individuals. They've learnt a lot about themselves, I think. And the other big thing has been flexibility, that you're faced with a situation that none of us, think back a year, when we were all making uh, preparations for holidays last year, <laughs> I was going overseas, maybe you were too. Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, 
we wouldn't, if someone had said, look, you know, people in Victoria will be locked down for months and uh, you'll... Sorry, you won't be able to visit your grandmother. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you or your cousin will, will have lost their jobs. We would have said, you know, um, this is inconceivable. Yeah. Yes. So what Australia had to do, what its governments had to do, what its individuals had to do, was to be flexible in this situation. And we've talked a bit about how Morrison and the government was flexible and the states. Mm. Um, and we know how, you know, our friends and our relatives have had to be flexible in rearranging their lives, uh, whether trying to find new jobs or trying to cope with four children running around a small house while you know they the parents work from home so i think those have been a couple of the the themes of the year and uh, they will carry on into the future the need for resilience the need for flexibility whether the specific changes will go on well i think some will like more people will work from home but there'll be a bit of a a bounce back on on that and uh, you will see uh, some industrial relations changes you'll see some differences in the federation but the the detail is yet to to be uh, what about bipartisanship what do you think that will endure uh, well no that won't <laughs> endure it's the question the question is how long it lasts and uh, that's really how long the crisis lasts, I think, because we are still in it. It's not as intense as it was just a few months ago, but it's not over. Mm. Thank you so much, Michelle. We have, uh, that's all the time we've got to have this discussion at the moment. Um, so we're going to have to say goodbye. Before um, we do, though, um, I wanted to just thank everybody uh, for your involvement, your engagement in the discussion, for the fabulous questions. And I'm sorry that we couldn't get to all of them. Um, also, just to um, let you know that if you would like to purchase the book, uh, The Year That Changed Us, you can do so uh, through the National Library Bookshop website. And uh, you just need to use the code CONVERSATION and you'll get a 20% discount on that. So thank you very much for joining in. Thanks, Michelle. And before we go, can uh, I say thank you too to to our audience today, but also to those readers who uh, follow us uh, week in, week out. We really do appreciate the, that you do so. We hope we give you something of value and we hope you subscribe to our newsletter as well as get hold of the book. Great. Thanks very much. And thanks so much for joining us via Facebook Live. Bye-bye.